welcome to Inside the Founders Studio with the California Technology Council, where we bring you perspectives directly from startup founders and investors in every episode. Now we turn to our host in our Northern California headquarters, Matt Gardner, founder of the California Technology Council. On this episode of Inside the Founder Studio, we're talking with Chad Mulder, who is the co-founder and CEO of Ruli. Chad, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about Ruli and, and what makes it a different kind of company. Sure. Ruli is a social enterprise, which is always a confusing term for some folks. But we are, in some ways, a very typical tech startup. Um, but on the other hand, we're also a social impact company. So we're, we've formed ourselves as a, a for-profit company that has a social impact objective of creating tech-related jobs, particularly focused on women in developing countries. So we are, as I said, sort of one part tech and, um, and one part social impact. The underlying principle is simply we think that we can use market dynamics and technology to not only solve real problems for customers, uh, but contribute to making the world a better place as well. So the digital divide has influenced your strategy right down to the bones of every employee. How, could you, uh, how can you paint that picture for our listeners about uh, what the digital divide means to um, how you're building out your infrastructure? Sure. Well, the starting point for us was, was pretty simple. It was just looking at the world particularly developing countries, and seeing how pervasive poverty still is. And, and, and just not being okay with that, sort of looking at it and feeling like, gosh, given today's resources, um, technologies, we, we, that just shouldn't be the case to the degree that it is, again, particularly um, for women in these areas of the, of the world. So that was sort of our starting point. And then from there we said, well, well then how can we uniquely contribute to solving that problem? And, and as technologists and business folks, we said, you know, gosh, I think we can create a company that in turn creates um, sustainable, compelling jobs for folks in these areas of the world. And the, and the digital divide that you mentioned kind of comes into play because there's this, there's this dichotomy, right? On the one hand, folks like you and I, Matt, uh, every day we, we participate in and contribute to the digital economy, and it's arguably sort of the most compelling, fastest growth um, areas of our broader economy. And yet folks in the developing world, for the most part, don't have any way to participate in that. So with Ruli, we said, let's, let's try to bring those two things together. Uh, we think that there's folks in the developing world that have a lot to contribute to the digital economy, and so uh, let's build a service around that, and in doing so, we, we can create jobs that for these folks um, build some digital and tech-related skills that are um, market-relevant today. Um, so they as individuals, and, and hopefully even as, as smaller communities, um, can be linked into that digital economy and grow and participate, again, like you and I do every day. So, so Chad, AngelList puts you in the categories of photography and mobile. What is it that Ruli's doing in those spaces? And, and if you could, in addition to kind of Ruli's uh, service to consumers, 
if you could take that uh, conversation about your employees a step further and talk about what it is you're asking your employees in the developing world to actually do connected to your your unique place between photography and mobile. Sure, sure. So let me. Why don't I take a step back and uh, describe just what what really is, and then we can get uh, to your question about what's the actual real workforce doing on a day to day basis. So the Ruli is a digital photo concierge service, and uh, what we mean by that is we're a service that helps solve the, we think, really big customer problem of digital photo overload. I, I ran across this stat recently, which I think is great. It says 10% of all of the photos ever taken by humanity were taken in the last 12 months. So we take more and more digital photos every year, and that trend is likely to not slow down anytime soon, which is fine. We all take a lot of photos. We all enjoy taking photos. But the problem is that we get overloaded by them. Um, it, though that number of photos sort of requires us to, to sit down, to think through them, to use some technology to organize them and sort them. Um, otherwise, they just sort of die under the weight of, of all the photos that we take. And so for our customers, we solve that through a combination of technology, and also a human workforce, a concierge service that's dedicated um, to helping you do three basic tasks with your photos, helping you sort through them, finding the good and the bad, organizing them into a system that you can find them later, navigate them, and then editing all the good stuff. So we've developed a workforce in Cambodia. Um, where we're able to, to train photo specialists really in depth uh, with all those three activities. And then we've developed um, a bunch of technologies that help in that process as well. So what the customer get, gets at the end of the day is something that technology alone can't really deliver, which is the idea that uh, some human judgment is really required for this process. It's really, really hard to build human judgment into an algorithm. But with this service, you don't have to. If you give the right technologies to really well-trained people that are acting on your behalf, it's a really compelling service. So back to your original question, what are, what's the workforce doing that helps solve this social problem um, of, of global poverty? So we deliberately um, located our workforce in Cambodia. And there, we're able to do um, some really interesting things. So we recruit people who are primarily living um, in the rural areas of the country who have completed high school but don't have a clear path after high school. So we recruit them, we train them, um, they become part of our workforce, and then we also offer them scholarships to go to university. So their first year um, on the job, they have a 65% scholarship, and then they can increase that every year thereafter. So the program is really oriented around giving them tech-related skills and some training, some training that we think is relevant uh, for today's economy, and then getting them into, into and through university um, through a typical four-year either business or technology-related program. Well, that's terrific, uh, and a great investment in people that you're making on the way to delivering a, a service that I'm sure lots of consumers, especially moms going to soccer games and Little League games will appreciate all over the world, right? Yeah, that's the idea, and you nailed it. I mean, more or less, that's our, our target. You know, busy parents who take a ton of digital photos, right? I mean, the phone, 
uh, camera-enabled phones have sort of accelerated the number of photos that we take. So, yeah, they're firing away, um, you know, little Johnny and little Janie as they go off to soccer practice. And uh, this concierge service for, for most of our customers is, is, you know, just a great service for them because they can fire away, not think about it, and they get back from us thoughtfully organized photos and beautifully edited photos. And, and where are you in that kind of market entry path? Have you got uh, a cohort of customers that's helping you improve and iterate uh, Ruli's offering, or have you already kind of arrived at your, uh, what you think is your final product? We are post-MVP launch, but I would say that we're still in the product market fit stage. So, yeah, we have an active product um, or, or service online. Everyone can, can go and sign up for that. Um, but we're, we're also learning a lot about what features that MVP, um, you know, should have going forward, uh, if there's additional features that might make a, a big difference. And then we're also learning a lot about um, what are the right sort of packages that the service um, should be sold at, whether it's the right number of photos or, or features, um, what platforms we integrate with, that sort of thing. So it's an active service. I think it's a compelling service, but we're kind of iterating and learning a lot every day too. And so obviously the, the social media phenomenon uh, of the, the personal photo sharing, uh, you know, has, has exploded thanks to, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all kinds of other uh, resources that people use. So, so given that proliferation of, of all these platforms, it, what's the ecosystem like for you? And is it simple enough for you to step into a, a, a Facebook universe uh, where families are sharing photos back and forth and, and offer this kind of value-added service directly in the place where, you know, these parents are, are already uh, consuming and sharing uh, images? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a really, really interesting space because on the one hand, you know, digital photos are not new. It's been around for quite a while. Um, there's been lots of companies that, that have launched and tried to solve different problems in the digital photo space. Um, and then obviously there's giants like Google, Facebook, and Apple. But at the same time, we feel like there's this, there's this one little piece of the landscape um, between the time that you capture an image and the time that you do something with it, meaning post it to social media, print it, uh, share it uh, with, with family, grandparents that live across the country, create a photo book or whatever. And that, that sort of no man's land in between those two things is, is this idea of, of getting my photos in a spot where they're actually organized enough and edited enough that I want to do those things, those activities. I, I want to print a photo book, for example. So we sort of made the decision early on to say we're, we're probably not going to be successful trying to compete with Google, with Facebook. Uh, I know that's brilliant, Matt. That's a brilliant insight. Um, but so instead of competing with, with those players unnecessarily, I think that there's room to sit in the landscape and, and be sort of tech agnostic. Um, and by tech agnostic, I just mean our, our customers use Facebook now. They use Google, certain parts of Google now. Um, but there's this one piece of organizing um, and sorting that's missing. So Ruli is really built in a way that our customers can use it 
and continue to use the other services and technologies that they currently use. So whether they use Dropbox um, or Facebook, they, maybe they print to Shutterfly, um, you know, maybe they use Google Drive, whatever, we're, we're building it to be, to fit into that, that broader landscape. Interesting. Okay. Uh, let me ask you about uh, Accelerator. So you are a graduate of the Forward Accelerator, and Jack's a leader there, is obviously a leader with a tremendous amount of energy, and he stays with his companies uh, after they've uh, graduated from the program and moved on. What, what did participating in Accelerator do for you? How did it impact your trajectory as a company? And, um, and, and what kind of outcomes do you think that really took from going through uh, an accelerator generally and specifically from forward? Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that question. I'm asked about accelerators a lot. And honestly, I have really, really mixed feelings about accelerators broadly. Um, my experience, I want to be clear that my experience with forward is a really good one. And, and I think what was good about that experience specifically was forward's focus on um, following more or less sort of lean startup principles and, and being really action-oriented. So the, the curriculum kind of took you through literally day one where you're thinking about incorporating a company and, and what should that look like um, and, and all of the different options that you have with respect to, to, to incorporation and then all the way through customer validation. So it's very prescriptive to say, in this phase, here's what you're trying to learn, and here's practical tools to do that. So for us, it was great because we more or less entered forward with a concept. You know, we, we thought it was a really compelling concept, but that was about it. And what we were able to, by the end of forward, what we had was a really, really, um, I think, compelling pile of customer validation. Um, that helped us understand exactly what problem we were trying to solve and exactly how we could do that, which essentially became our MVP specs. So for us, it was great. It was a way that we could make a lot of progress um, in a really structured way in a pretty short period of time. You know, I, I don't, and then back to my sort of comment earlier, I, I, I don't know that all accelerators are sort of that um, well-structured. And um, like I said, I have a lot of founders and others come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about this accelerator or that accelerator. And I, and I don't think they're all, they're all sort of created equally. So there's some out there where I, I, I don't know, I question the value of, but to the degree that they're action-oriented, I think they can be a really good thing. So, Chad, for accelerators in general, do you have a view of – the way that this model has developed into one of accelerators asking for equity for every company that moves through, has that been a positive thing, do you think, for entrepreneurs, or, or is there a caveat emptor factor here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult, of course, to make sweeping generalizations, right? But I personally am a, a bit leery of how accelerators seem to be setting up where yeah, it's a pay-to-play. You're either paying with cash or you're paying with equity. It seems to be sort of more set up, frankly, for the investor than it is for the entrepreneur, where it's sort of um, the great way to create deal flow for investor communities. Um, I, I, think, I think at the end of the day what the entrepreneur should do is just be really thoughtful about 
whether that deal flow creation um, can result in a win-win for him or for her. Um, because I think that there's some accelerators who, who seem to tout their networks a lot and create a lot of really interesting dinners and speaker series. Um, you know, that again can capture the entrepreneur's attention for, for a good amount of time, but, but it also takes time away from the entrepreneur and, and his or her ability to focus on actually building the business. So I think that's balancing those two things out is probably the most important thing, I think, um, for, for the entrepreneur. Chad, you're a, an unusual founder in that you didn't necessarily come through a, you know, software engineering background or, you know, uh, come out of an MBA program at Stanford that dropped you right into a startup. You came through a consumer product background. It's a bit unusual. So can you talk about that a little bit and how it influenced your um, decision to jump in and, and take a leap with Ruli? Sure. Yeah, for, you know, at the risk of sounding like a homer, I, I did come from a great MBA program. I went to the University of Michigan, um, which, you know, for all of you Michiganders listening, um, I, I think that's as compelling as any Stanford grad out there. Uh, but <laughs> so when I, when I, gra- I actually graduated from Michigan in the early 2000s, and it was sort of right when the first Internet bubble was bursting, depending on how you count Internet bubbles. And, um, and left Michigan early with a group of friends, and we started a um, mobile phone payment company that was funded by Citibank. Uh, we launched it in Singapore, and then a few years later sold it to uh, Singapore Technologies. So I, I sort of had that, so right out of school I had been, um, I guess, infected with the virus of startups. And then you're right, I came back to the U.S., and I joined um, uh, Consumer Packaged Goods, company, big one in Chicago, and spent a number of years there. It was an, it's always been an interesting career path. It's probably not the career path that you would whiteboard out for a you know, young business or technology person. But I think what it did afford me is um, sort of a deep dive um, learning and, and set of experiences in the consumer world, which, which now as I enter the tech world or re-enter the tech world, I think that serves me pretty well. I mean, just the degree to which we're able to understand our customer, um, dig around for, for driving customer insights that directly inform our, our, well, first of all, our MVP, but then also just our feature set and our, and our product going on. I think that that serves the company well. But with that said, Matt, I mean, you're right. What, <clears throat> what I lack as an entrepreneur is sort of the, the tech background that a lot of you know, Silicon Valley folks have. So the trick for me and for Ruli is um, is finding the right co-conspirators who who kind of balance that that out for me. I'm able to to um, to think, I think, pretty pretty well on what's the consumer problem that we're trying to solve. How do we best solve that? How do we translate that into a product? Um, and then I need part of the team who's who's working with me to translate that into reality. Sure. So it, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, Chad, but looking at your, your resume, bookending your time at Kraft, you have two exits. You, you know, obviously, you talked about MVENT and the Citibank uh, experience and selling to Singapore Technologies, but then JetJaw afterwards. So you've actually had a couple of exits that, uh, that jump out from your resume. 
Yeah, I've had a couple of JetJaw. I was involved in JetJaw just as an advisor. So um, sure, I'm willing to, I guess, take a tiny, tiny, you know, bit of LinkedIn credit on that. But no, not much. I was not on the founding team of that. I, I was just a part-time advisor on that. Um, gotcha. Yeah, okay. I mean, listen, I think that some of the – Silicon Valley is a great place. I mean, it's changing the world every day. I, I, I am totally inspired by it every, every day. Um, the danger is that we as a community jump in and start building things, you know, that, that aren't grounded in a – deep understanding of the customer, right? I mean, that's what Lean Startup essentially is. That school of thought basically is don't do that. And, and I think Silicon Valley still is largely technologists. Um, it's, there's certainly a growing community of designers, which is awesome. Um, but I, I, I do think that there's still sort of, if, if there's a piece that's lacking, it's sort of this deep customer insight piece. Um, you know, that the broader sort of Silicon Valley community could, could benefit from. So that's the piece on, on sort of the day-to-day -day operations of Lulu. That's the piece that I try to bring to the company and, and provide leadership in. So let's now turn to your experience as a founder and what you might tell other founders. And first, Chad, I'm going to give you this great power of time travel. So you're stepping in a time machine to talk to the most important founder in your life, you. You're going to go back, but you only have a ride in an elevator to talk to yourself. So what's the one thing, if you were given this opportunity, what is the one thing that you would tell yourself when you were getting really started? Oh, man. First of all, I love your elevator time machine technology. <clears throat> uh, I'm all for it. And you know, that's a really easy question for me, actually. Um, I would definitely tell myself to build faster. And at the risk of talking out of both sides of my mouth, because I just stepped up onto the soapbox and gave my rah-rah consumer insight speech. Um, you know, I, I, the, the downside of being so focused on consumer insight and learning is that you um, sacrifice speed. And I think the thing that I would tell myself is don't, don't keep doing what you're doing on the customer learning piece, but in parallel to that, Go as fast as you can in the build phase, and then just iterate like mad. Because um, I think we lost we, we lost some speed early on. That that um, yeah, if I could step in your elevator and go back and recapture, um, that's what I would do. And the, and the other piece too, you know, again, this is sort of like straight out of lean startup. Um, a thought to the degree that you have a real product and a real service and you're getting real-time feedback, um, that's, that's just great learning. So I think we, we lost some of that early, uh, that early speed, and as a result, we lost some of that early learning too because we were um, a, a bit slower than we needed to be on the, on the customer interview piece of what we were doing. Now, let's give you the power of, uh, of a whole classroom and be future-looking. What would you tell the next generation of entrepreneurs about what you've learned as a founder? Well, I mean, listen, I'm a social entrepreneur this, in this startup, and I think that the social impact space is a really interesting one because it's still sort of, I don't know, birthing itself. It still has a long ways to go to, to understand itself. And so there's this whole group of 
of entrepreneurs out there that care deeply about social causes of some kind, right? Like for us it's poverty, but there's plenty of problems to go around, whether it's education, um, health care, uh, race relations, pick your, pick your problem of the day. There's tons of them. So a lot of these entrepreneurs care really deeply about those, those issues and are really, really talented entrepreneurs or technologists. So for that group of people, I would say, hey, even though sort of the broader social impact community is pretty young, so to speak, um, there's tons of opportunity here. And I would encourage those folks to, like, not compartmentalize those two worlds and be bold. Come up with startups that you feel like use market dynamics, use technologies to solve some of these problems um, in for-profit ways. Um, and, and by doing that, those folks are not just creating interesting businesses, but they're actually helping the space more broadly to figure out itself, to, to shape what social enterprise is and what it could be. Um, so I don't think your question was focused necessarily on social enterprises, but, but that's sort of our mindset now. So that's the first group of people that I would talk to. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, so uh, our uh, CTC's current startup challenge is called Up All Night. And uh, the core question here is, what's keeping you up at night while you're building a company, Chad? Too much coffee during the day, first of all. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, you know, there, there's no, no lack of things for me to lose sleep over. But probably the biggest one is, um, well, there's two. The biggest one is probably finding the right people. And um, so I, just to give you a little bit of background, Matt, I'm not from the Bay Area, right? I moved here about four years ago. And it's really funny because when, before moving here, I thought, gosh, if I launch a company in or around Silicon Valley, you know, engineers are going to fall out of the sky, grow on trees, you know, pick your analogy. They're going to be uh, um, so easy to find. And I have not found that's the case, right? I mean, I think actually it's sort of the opposite. I think the Bay Area is one of the more difficult places to, to recruit tech talent. And then we have, I think, the added sort of layer, which is we're trying to attract the right people, but attract the right people, attract people with the right skill sets who also understand and are, <coughs> excuse me, and are passionate about our social impact piece. So, yeah, that keeps me up at night. You know, how do we get the right people um, in the right places in our company, and we just, we're just closing our first round of angel investment, so we're actively trying to deploy some of that money and attract some of those, those folks. So there's candidates out there, but um, gosh, finding the right ones is, is proving tricky, so that definitely keeps me up at night. Okay, well that's a, that is a definitely a common theme, the talent challenge. I'm gonna come back to something you mentioned about relocating into the Bay Area, but before I do that, uh, let me ask you about something that we ask uh, a lot of our uh, friends about, which is uh, where do you turn for help? And the theme here is who is your call to the bullpen, the first place that you turn when you've hit a speed bump and you need some objective advice? Yeah, it's a good question. It's one that, I mean, frankly, early on I hadn't figured out. And I think now several months in, uh, I'm just getting to a, a stride with that. I have a group of 
advisors, and I'm thinking specifically of two or three advisors, that um, that are in some ways are not even formal advisors. I talk to them as if they they are advisors, but they're they're not found on any sort of slide deck um, or official sort of ruly advisor um, things. But they're people that know me really well as an individual, but then they also have been around for the sort of the ruly journey, and they understand our origins, why we started, what our DNA is, what we're trying to achieve, what we struggle with, what we're really good at. And those are the folks, there's two or three, as I said, that, um, that I'm able to call and just be pretty honest about what's going on, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and so that's my first call. Yeah, if I'm running into problems, uh, they each, the two or three people each have sort of their own uh, areas of specialties, uh, of specialization. So depending on what's going on, um, you know, I'll call one of them for fundraising advice or for um, staffing advice or, or what have you. Interesting. Uh, okay, so last you know, question is really, yeah, go ahead. Hey, sorry, Matt. The other thing, you know, I'm, I'm also, I'm a unique entrepreneur because, um, and so I'm married and I have two kids, and my wife is, um, is probably sort of the, the more uh, risk-embracing of the two of us, which is probably not the case for most entrepreneurs. I think of, I, I'm pretty risk-embracing, but my wife is sort of even more so. So I have sort of a, um, I think a benefit of sort of going home at the end of the day too and being, being able to bring some of those problems home and, and talk through them. My wife is not a business person or technologist. She's actually a therapist, um, but can, I think given her sort of mindset of, of uh, I don't know, how she thinks about risk and, and startups, uh, it's funny because she's become sort of one of those, I guess, informal uh, advisors. Well, I have to say, I'm sure there are countless founders who are paying a therapist for that service when they go home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get free, uh, free therapist, free therapy. Yeah. Uh, at home. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, not, that's not a, that's not exactly what I meant, but uh, maybe that's closer to the truth than I'm willing to admit. <laughs> it's good counsel, anyway. Um, so let's go to the ten thousand foot view. You mentioned your own relocation to the Bay Area, and and of course at a time in your career you were doing uh, a function for. Craft looking at uh, you know a change in their open innovation strategy. So this has happened a lot in the last decade with uh, Fortune 500, Global 1000 types coming into California uh, to reshape their corporate innovation and open innovation strategies. Uh, do you have a perspective on that and how much that's changed and evolved in the last few years? I do have I have a perspective just based on my own experience. I mean, I, yeah, I was in a group called Breakthrough Innovation, and our charter was essentially to figure out what the company should be doing 10 years from, from now that the business divisions or the brands probably wouldn't be doing on their own. So we were looking at some crazy stuff like how do we um, serve people with diabetes better, not just with food but with other resources, uh, particularly some online portals and some different um, technologies around how do you keep track of your, your food intake and such. And then we're also doing things with um, – different functional foods, the, the, probably the coolest was we figured out a technology um, that could prevent intestinal parasites that are prevalent in developing countries, particularly around kids. So we were trying to figure out a way to 
to deliver that in a way that was sort of economically feasible and um, and effective at the biological level. So so there so there are pretty crazy things, you know. In my experience, um, it's funny because that program actually at Kraft ended up not being successful. It was a big program. We spent a lot of money and a lot of years, and actually made the recommendation. To, to my manager and ultimately to the CEO to shut the program down. Uh, in, in, in my experience, corporate, um, the corporate environment is a really difficult one to pull off um, sort of a, I, I guess in that case it was a social impact sort of um, product. It was difficult just because there had to be some level of, um, I guess, I guess, leadership at the top end of the company that said, hey, we're going to do these things um, because we believe in what they are and, and, and we're going to make it a priority sort of company-wide. <clears throat> so it's funny, Matt, because in some ways, going through that experience uh, in, at Craft was an interesting bridge for me to say, like, gosh, maybe social enterprise um, can be done in the corporate setting, but there's some things that make it a challenge there too. And so, you know, maybe there's another path to get to social enterprise, which is um, just as a typical sort of tech startup. Um, so anyway, so that was sort of my experience with Craft. And then, and maybe more to your question, um, there was some groups that when I was there was moving, had moved some operation into Silicon Valley. They were looking at uh, open innovation uh, they were looking at ways that they could even build some um, investment funds for for interesting areas um, of functional food and so on and so forth. I'm really optimistic about that. Actually, I think it's really difficult to pull off from the on the corporate side. I, I just don't think there's a lot of systems and I guess even strategies in place that support that. Um, to do it well, and there's not a lot of long-term thinking uh, oftentimes in that corporate setting. But if, if those things can be overcome, I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, I, um, and I, obviously I'm not in food anymore, but I look around just in the food space, and I see some really interesting companies doing things around um, interesting proteins, around functional food, sort of food as medicine type stuff. Um, interesting sourcing strategies, things like that. And, um, and just using that as, a, as sort of a proxy of this sort of corporate slash Silicon Valley slash open innovation model, I think there's a ton that can be learned um, by joining forces in that way. I just don't think anyone's really um, sort of cracked that nut. There's no one that we can point to and it's like, you know, hey, they – seem to be doing it really well. They're sort of one-offs, but yeah, give us some time. I think we'll see it. I appreciate that insight, Chad. It's uh, certainly something that is reshaping the landscape of uh, investing in, in California right now. Um, where can people learn more about Ruli, Chad? Right, probably our website is the best place. So we're at getruli.com, and there's a couple different things there, videos, some different content that will explain who we are, what we are, and how we can help you with, with their photos and, and, uh, and what our social impact objectives are. Excellent. Well, this has been a great early snapshot of a, a picture that's still developing.
so I think Chad uh, Mulder, co-founder and CEO of Ruli, thank you very much for your time and for your insight today. Thanks, Matt. It was super fun. This episode of Inside the Founder Studio has been brought to you by Founders Suite, providing an essential set of tools for startup founders through a California Technology Council member benefit. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org slash member benefits. Inside the Founder Studio is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council.